There were people dying around me, just had the same symptoms as I did. And they were, they were digging my grave thinking I'm not going to make it. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Hi, everyone. Chúc mừng năm mới. That's Happy New Year in Vietnamese. In today's episode, we will continue our stories on Generation 1.5. For those who are just catching up this season, Generation 1.5 is a term used to describe people who migrated here as children. In this season, we share with you the unique experiences of these child refugees and what it was like to live through extraordinary circumstances and be separated from their families. In the last episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Tan Ha Lai, award-winning author of Inside Out and Back Again, a historical fiction based on Tan Ha's life as a 10-year-old child refugee growing up in Alabama. She spoke about being the youngest of nine children and the sense of free spirit that she was afforded being the youngest, unlike her older siblings. In this episode, I want to contrast that experience by sharing the story of Tan Yung Boyer, who was also a child refugee who grew up in Alabama. I am the oldest of six children. There's uh, five girls and a boy, and he's the youngest. Being the oldest, I'm always taking leadership, uh, protecting my siblings. It's a responsibility, but I think being born the oldest, know what your role is and just taking charge of a lot of things. Tan was born in 1967 in Tang It's about six miles from the Cambodian border in the Mekong Delta. Her grandfather owned a family business, a manufacturing plant that bottled the soda Fanta. The whole family actually worked for my grandfather. So um, my dad especially run a lot of the operations and my mom's uh, helped him. And really there's, there's 10 siblings on my father's side. Everybody worked in the business. I am what you would call a street smart kid. <laughs> I'm not academically, I hated school. I hated sitting in the classroom, but I loved being at my grandfather's house and watching all the business transactions. Before the fall Saigon, we were one of the wealthiest family in Zhangzhou. I mean, my grandfather was very generous too. And um, there's a wing at the hospital named after him, but we were fairly wealthy people. I was told that being the firstborn in each family, we were bathed in champagne as a newborn. So that that was pretty decadent. I grew up, you know, a spoiled kid. Uh, I have everything. We have maids and we have cooks and we have babysitters, you know, live a really, really good life. I asked Tan if she was aware that there was a war going on around her. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. I was aware of the war that's going on in Vietnam. But most of the fighting was not really where we are. The effect that we really felt was really after the fall of Saigon of 75. Tan's life of luxury would end in 1975. She was only eight years old. The youngest sibling was two. After the war ended, 
the communists nationalized private property and businesses, leaving Tan and her family with nothing but the little bakery to survive. After 75, things got really, really tough for us. Um, we were struggling as a family. We lost a lot of our lands, and they confiscated a lot of our land and our bank accounts and homes. They let us kept our home, but everything else they confiscated um, told us what we could produce and not produce. Like the Fantastic Balling Company was closed. Uh, we were able to keep the bakery. The Khmer Rouge Popot of Cambodia and Vietnam was at war with each other. And living only six miles from the Cambodia border, we got the brunt, the Mekong River, become bloodbath, really, because when Popot went through his killing fields, killing spree, uh, lots of bodies floating down the river. And then at night across the river, sometimes they would raid some of the villages across the river. And we would see, um, they would burn the place. You can hear people screaming and gunfire and children screaming for their parents. I was about seven, eight. I'm pretty aware of the war that's going on. We don't have a cook anymore. We don't have <laughs> maids anymore. Because I think my mom and dad worked extra hard. So we basically, I had to learn how to take care of my siblings. And I'm, I'm pretty street smart, I think. Um, and how to cook, make a fire, cook rice, uh, kill the chicken and fish. You know, a lot before we had people prepare our food for us, but now we have to do it ourselves. And so I had to learn how to do those things to have to kept my siblings. So when do you think your family started talking about wanting to escape Vietnam? Can you explain to the listeners why people had to escape? Why weren't they free to leave their country? The communists are not going to allow you to leave anywhere. We can't even go to the next town without having to tell them where we're going, what they were going, and how long we're going. So everything has to be monitored. And um, a lot of people that really want to leave Vietnam because life has gotten really bad and they know that it's not going to get any better. And my family wasn't even, we weren't going to leave because we didn't have enough money to pay. Then one day in 1979, an opportunity came her way. Her aunt and uncle were planning to escape with a group of people. My aunt came home and told us that there's a family that signed up to leave and they uh, have backed out. Um, one of the aunts and uncle family with two kids going to fit into that profile. And so if you have the money, you could take that family's, um, take their place and leave. And then that's when my dad said, do you think there's room for two of my kids? because that's all my parents could afford. Right then and there, her father had to make the toughest decision of his life. He put the lives of his two eldest children in the hands of his brother and younger sister. Why don't you take them to the coast of Bakleo? That's where the boat is. Um, so within hours, my parents have to make that decision. 
And did you have any clue though? Like in the morning, what did your parents tell you? My parents told me to, you know, at 12 years old, I have always had that sense of adventures anyway. I, I love discovering new places and stuff. So my parents were like, well, you're going to go away with your aunts and uncles. And, um, but they didn't tell me that, you know, that they, I might not get to see them again, or, you know, they didn't tell me anything in detail. They just said, just trust us. I know it was an agonizing decision that I have to make. And what they spent on my sister and I is probably a whole lot more money than they could really afford. And so the next day, we took a long a bus to back Leo with my aunt. Anything that's new to me as a sense of adventure. And so what gone through my mind at that time that I could recall was that, yes, I'm going to get to go somewhere that's outside of Vietnam. In my mind is, I'm going to go and I'm going to do well in school and I'm going to do all these things, uh, you know, and I'm going to have my family, get my family out of Vietnam. Um, I did not know, you know, how, how that's going to happen, but that's what I wanted. And once we got on the boat, um, when reality started to sink in. So when we took the bus down to the coast of Bakalil and we, um, we boarded the uh, refugee boat, there's about 400 plus refugees on the boat. It was at night. How big was the boat, do you think? Oh my gosh, it's not big at all. Um, there's a lower deck and there's upper deck. Most of the people are in the lower deck. And really, there isn't any place to really lay down, just to sit, really. Uh, very, very crowded there on the boat. And, um, of course, lots of people got sick. They were just trying to fit in as many people as they could on the boat. I can't, I can't remember how big it is, Tracy, but uh, I know it, wasn't, it was so crowded that we just kind of sat. And to sleep, my sister and I would... Um, telling on each other um, back to back and sleep that way. What I vividly remember the most is, I guess, is being really crowded and real stuffy, and I got really sick. I remember uh, seasick and was throwing up everywhere, and so they actually lifted me from the lower deck into the upper deck to get some fresh air. And uh, I remember looking out. I think that's when reality starts sinking in because. Here's our little bitty boat out in this vast ocean, and it was scary. I was fine when I was in the lower deck, but when I, when I, when I came to the upper deck, it was scary to me because uh, I look out there and there's no land. So that's that's when it's really kind of, kind of starts sinking in. Oh no, <laughs> what's gonna happen next? Her 12-year-old mind was no longer filled with fearless adventure. Instead, it quickly turned to hope that she and her younger sister would survive the trip. And the goal was to get to Australia. Um, so there was a lot of hope, lots, lots and lots of hope. They said they had enough fuel and maps and everything to get to Australia. But we were 
hoping actually to be picked up by a military or commercial of the US, United States of America. It was after three days, uh, we landed in Malaysia. We were so happy because it was land, you know, and the Navy of Malaysian's Navy pulled us out into the international water and they were the ones that robbed us. I shared with Tan that my father's experiences with Malaysians was positive, that even though they could not immediately find refuge there, the people were kind and shared food and water with them. However, I had also heard horrible stories, just like the one that she's about to share with me. Uh, they took a young man and pretty much tortured him by putting him on their metal deck and his feet got burned and you can hear him screaming for help. And it's just another way of intimidating. When they come aboard on our boat, they use a metal detector to find gold and they found some between the boards and they pull out all these boats and they're, they belong to the captains, of course, of the boats. And they go to each person, make them strip their jewelry and hand it to them. That was really scary because my sister and I, actually, we took, we had some jewelry with us and we took, stripped the jewelry out of our our bracelets and necklace and stuff it in our mouth to hide it from the pirates. And did you, like, how did you know to do that? Yeah, and told us and, and they're like, you know, don't, don't look them in the eye, just keep the jewelry in your mouth and, you know, look downcast. They actually, my aunts had some diamonds that they had hid in their chewing gum and stuff it in their mouth also. A lot of people stripped their jewelry off and gave it. But like I said, the metal detector had found a lot of gold that was hidden between the boards of the boat. And they were really happy with that. They didn't punish anybody. So you and your sister have all this jewelry in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, we did. We <laughs> sure did. And um, I mean, I feel like I would be like peeing in my pants. <laughs> like, how did you like, I mean, I just I don't I don't know. I can't imagine like. Did they even come by you? They did, yeah. They came with, you know, their uniform and guns guns ready. Um, yeah, they walked us, of course. Um, but they were really happy that all those gold that they found with the uh, metal detector. So they didn't search the people as much as they would have if they didn't find those gold, I think. I think that was the, of course, I feel bad for the captains because that was his, his and his savings that he had put away. Um, but for the people, they didn't search us too bad. They tow us out to our father and they uh, disabled the engine and threw away the gas and the maps and just let and, and cut, they cut the rope after they tow us out and left us because there was this huge storm coming um, so I think they were hoping that we would die in the storm. It was rough with the storm and all that, but the storm carried us to Indonesia. Well, when we got to Indonesia, we were so afraid that they were Malaysians. <laughs> there was, uh, there was a, a fear there when we saw land and we were like, oh, please, God, don't let it be the Malaysians again. 
so, um, but it was Indonesians. And the Indonesians tow our boat to um, a deserted refugee camp that already has one boat, one refugee boat there. So our boat was actually the second boat on Cuckoo Island. Cuckoo Island is a place most people have never heard of. It is located in the remote Anabas region in Indonesia. It's not even labeled on most maps. The island was completely deserted. There were no buildings, no paths. It was all jungle and it was wild. It was not an established refugee camp by any means. It was where they believed they were dropped off to die. Yeah, when we got there, Cuckoo Island was a deserted island, of course. And when we arrived on that island that afternoon into the night, it was uh, raining and there was no shelter there. So I remember sleeping in the rain. And of course, we didn't have a whole lot of stuff anyway. Everything was wet and there was no shelter, no food. There's no help there. So we pretty much have to build shelter for ourselves. And I remember um, looking for looking for food, looking for looking for fresh water. And there's streams, several streams of um, water that I remember us going to collect. And uh, we tried to boil it so that we don't get sick. And and food-wise, we did have some rice with us, and we had some dry fish. So you know, we make rice soup and eat the dry fish and whatever we can find on land, um, some critters <laughs> that we end up catching, um, keep our tummy full. But there was a lot of night that lots and lots of nights that when we went to bed hungry. And I don't mean just hungry. I mean, really, really, really hungry. So what did you do for shelter? So eventually we built a shelter uh, out of banana leaves, and uh, whatever we can find on the island, we pretty much built ourselves a temporary shelter. People helping each other, you know, and we start digging wells. And we were there several months before they discovered that this island has refugee. And that's when they, the international um, care and the World Vision Star showing up to help us. And at this point, have you had any contact with your parents? No, they didn't even know we survived at sea. Um, my parents didn't really find out until months and months later that we had survived and that we ended up in refugee camp instead of Australia. We had we had cousins that live in Australia and we had the address and everything. So eventually, uh, after six months being in the camp, we sent a letter through World Visions and they sent it to my cousin in Australia, and my cousin Australia sent a letter to Vietnam to tell my parents that we're in a refugee camp in Indonesia. There's a lot of things that I have not, that I have forgotten over the camp. And I think that's, a lot of it probably was really painful and it's being pushed down really deep <laughs> that I don't remember. But what I remember is just every single day getting up and um, looking for ways to survive um, and everybody doing it. So 
you know, you're not just the only one that doing it. So I think it's, it feels like a little community there and we're all helping each other to survive this I, on this island. Um, flies was really, 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 really bad in Cuckoo Island. And I mean, the nickname was called, they, everybody called it Fly Island. And so many people were sick and so many people die of dysentery. And I actually, they were actually, I got so sick at one point that they actually was digging my grave thinking I'm, I'm going to die. This one sentence, so I read at the end of your chapter and I highlighted it. I wonder how long it would take for bad man to find out I died and light incense for me. I hope that they would know I fought with everything I had. My uncle gathered enough money to buy the medicine to cure my misery, lifted my limp body up off the pallet and carried me to the doctor. One shot, 100 US dollars gone, one life spared, one empty grave that day, one hope still alive, one more day. I mean, I thought that was so powerful. It was such a sacrifice that my aunt and uncle made to pay for that shot. And I have no idea what that shot was. I was, I was skin and bone. I was so frail. I couldn't keep anything down. They were, there were people dying around me, just had the same symptoms as I did. And they were, they were digging my grave thinking I'm not going to make it. And my aunt and uncle decided that they had this money that they need to pay this doctor. I don't know where he get the medicine from. And $100 is a lot of money. So, um, and I have no idea what the shot was, but what, whatever it was, it, it cured me. And I started to get better. But that one shot saved my life. Tan, her sister, aunt, and uncle lived on Cuckoo Island for 11 months. Today, the island is as sparse as it first was before the refugees arrived. There is not a clear count of how many refugees died on that island. Many graves are still there, and a small monument was built in honor of the Vietnamese boat people that died on that island. We got word that we can get sponsor, and from there they transfer us to Galang Island, which is a lot better. <laughs> it's got running water, it's got economy of its own, it's got you know all kind of doctors there, and so we went through a um, rigorous of uh, medical examination to make sure that we are healthy to enter the U.S. And we found out that we also going to get to come to the U.S. because my uncle was in the Navy. He was a naval officer. And so he has um, a choice of choosing where he wants to be sponsored, where he wants to live. And so he picked it. Of course, everybody wanted to come to the United States. But of course, he picked the U.S. And that's when we got word that we were sponsored. And so we moved to the Galang um, Island and we were there for about three or four months before we left. They were sponsored by a couple in Athens, Alabama. This is where Tan and her sister grew up and call home. The rest of their family remained in Vietnam. In 1993, just when the U.S. and Vietnam were opening trade relations again, 
Tan made her first trip back to Vietnam. I left in 79, and in 93 was when I went back to Vietnam um, with my husband and my um, four-month-old daughter. And that was the first time that I saw my family. Um, so 79 to 93, that's 14 years. And at that time, we already started the paperwork to sponsor all six family members. So about a year, year and a half later, after I saw my family, it's when they we got them here. Going through what I've gone through, um, I've learned to live within means. Um, I've learned to also discover that all of us, you know, have a built in us a survival skill. And if you want it enough, if you want to survive enough, you can live through anything. And, you know, we're very blessed living the life here in the United States. But I also know that if something was to happen, then we would lose everything and that I would be okay because I have survived. Um, you know, having, having a lot to have a nothing. So um, I'm really thankful actually for that. Today, Tan's home is still Alabama with her husband and two children. About a year ago, Tan published her story called The Ground Kisser, co-written by Lisa Worthy-Smith. You can find the book on Amazon or visit thegroundkisser.com. Part of the proceeds of book sales go to local veteran organizations and Abandoned Little Angels, an organization that helps orphanages in Vietnam. Tan has made several trips to visit these orphanages, and the mission is close to her heart. For more information on this episode, and to connect with Tan Yung Boyer, follow our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People, and look for details under episode 16. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.